Father, we're so thankful that in Jesus, you stepped out of eternity and into time to reveal to us your glory. We're thankful, Lord, that while you call us to do at times the unthinkable as we follow you, we have great confidence to get out of the boat and walk in faith because Jesus is leading. Because he's loving. And because your vision for us is greater than we could ever ask or imagine. Thank you, Father, for the freedom of your spirit today. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead us into truth, lead us to faith, and lead us to be the ambassadors of Christ that you've called us to be. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. What we read in John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21 there is the fifth sign in the book of John. And really, if, if you were listening critically, you know that John presents this sign totally free of fluff. There are no additives or preservatives. He just tells us the story. These are the facts. Okay, in the middle of the night, when the storm of resistance was raging against the disciples, Jesus walked out to them on the water. That's what happened. Jesus walked out to them on the water. They understandably were terrified until he convinced them of who he was. They gladly welcomed him aboard, and remarkably, the trip was over. Immediately, the text says, they got to their destination. Now, those facts point to Jesus as the Son of God. What does that mean? That means the laws of nature do not confine him any more than scarcity of food limits the number of people he can feed. That's the sign we looked at last week. He took five barley loaves and two small fish and fed the multitudes. When his guys needed him the most, when they were discouraged and rowing against the wind, he approached them walking on water. He was and is Lord of creation. Think about that. By his word, the lights came on. The land rose above the sea. The raging storms fell silent. And water became a walkway. It was a sign of glory. Of his glory. And the glory of the Father. Now, those are the facts. Okay, I don't know if you've really ever stopped to contemplate the facts according to this story. He walked on water. Right? Those are the facts. People have been struggling with those facts since the story has been told. 
The, the modern scientific mind cannot accept it. By the way, my mind struggles to accept it. Let, let me tell you, I, if, if you've ever been here and we talked about this story, I have probably shared this because this is one of my favorite uh, articles that I've ever come across. In 2006, in National Geographic, an article appeared entitled, and I'm not kidding, Jesus may have walked on ice, not water, scientists say. Well, at least they thought he was walking, right? So they give him credit there. But ice, this is real. I'm, I'm not kidding. This is real. Okay, and this is a direct quote from the article. A rare set of weather events may have combined, may have combined to create a slab of ice about four to six inches thick on the lake, making it able to support a person's weight, said Doran Knopf, an oceanographer at Florida State University in Tallahassee. And all the gators said, of course, he's a Seminole. It goes on to say, our models show that there was a cold snap at that time. Okay. Which lasted a few days and drastically lowered the temperature. Now, I assume it was that cold snap that lasted for a few days that created the ice for walking. So I understand Jesus could have possibly walked on water in another form, on ice, who can't walk on ice. But it, th the problem I have with that is that it doesn't explain the waves or how the disciples were rowing through the storm or how Peter sank. If it was ice, how could any of that have been going on? Now listen, that article illustrates perfectly how difficult it is to believe that any man could walk on water. Right? But here's what we know about Jesus. He was no ordinary man. See, th this sign frees us to believe that all things are possible with God. The matchless maker of heaven and earth transcends the limits of the material universe he created, and therefore he is great and greatly to be praised. John leaves no doubt with this simple telling of the fifth sign. Jesus, the Son of God, and this sign reveals his glory. But, let me tell you, we, we know a lot more about this event than John tells us. Because Matthew and Mark jumped in and shared their perspective too. What they saw when they were in the boat and Jesus was walking on water. Now, why, have you ever wondered about why John's account would be so different from Matthew's and Matthew's different from Mark's? Have you ever wondered why the Bible that tells the same story tells it from so many different angles? Well, it, it's actually for the same reason that investigators talk to multiple witnesses at the scene of a crime. 
The reason is different things stand out to different people. John was looking for signs of the divinity of God and he saw them as Jesus walked on the water while Matthew and Mark actually focused on the humanity of men and what happens when men believe in the divinity of Christ. So they were looking at things from the perspective of what's going on in the boat, and John wanted us to see it from a theological perspective. What was God up to as Jesus walked on the water? So here's what we're going to do today. We've exclusively been in the book of John as we examine these signs of glory, but we're going to step back from John's bare-bones approach and share, I think, what Paul Harvey would say is the rest of the story. To begin with, here's what we know. Jesus and the disciples were coming off of the only sign that is other than the resurrection that is recorded in all four Gospels. It's the only one. Do you know what it is? The only miracle recorded in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. Right. I I knew you would get it. Feeding of the 5,000. It's the only one that's everywhere. And so, what what is that about? With the help of the disciples and a young boy who offered him his happy meal, five barley loaves and two small fish, Jesus fed 5,000 men plus the women and children, which brings the multitude's number to 15 to 20,000 people. And, And while the crowds didn't exactly respond by saying, oh, he's the son of God, they were at that moment ready to make Jesus king. Listen to John chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, which was the feeding of the 5,000, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and take him by force, make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain, to a mountain by himself. Now, here's, here's what was going on there. All Jews who paid any attention to their scriptures, which was all Jews, all Jews knew that Moses promised a prophet who would come as a forerunner to the Messiah. Now, at that time, they actually thought, well, John the Baptist could be that prophet. He's weird. He was definitely weird. But he could be the prophet. The only problem was they didn't see a Messiah anywhere. No one thought the carpenter from Nazareth was the Messiah. No chance. So, they were thinking maybe John the Baptist is the one, then the Messiah is to come. But guess what happened to John the Baptist right before this? He had been beheaded. So they crossed him off the list because that prophet would never be captured by their enemies and eliminated. They, they didn't think a pro- that prophet would be killed. They certainly couldn't conceive of a Messiah being captured by the enemies and eliminated. So with John the Baptist out of the picture, they said, well, maybe it's Jesus. Maybe this is the guy. Because all the masses, they had eaten all the, the, the miracle food, lunch, And they decided that Jesus must be that prophet. So they wanted him to be the king. 15 to 20,000 strong were pressing in to take him by force and make him king. Now, it appears as though the disciples were drawn into the hysteria. 
They loved the idea because the disciples were always waiting to be elevated to some position of significance beyond the 12 dudes who followed that rabbi around. And so Matthew and Mark actually inform us that to protect them from the foolishness that was going on around Jesus, he puts them in the boat to head back across the lake. And he stays behind to dispense the crowds. Now, the disciples at this point who have learned we just ought to do what he says, they comply, but it's with a great deal of reluctance. Why? There were two problems they had with just rowing away. The first was FOMO. They they had a fear of missing out on his coronation. See, he was their guy, and they wanted to be there to celebrate and to be celebrated because they wanted the glory that came with being associated with the king of Israel who would put down the Romans. So they didn't want to leave. They had a fear of missing out. The second reason they hesitated to leave was because there was one sign that they could always read. They may have missed the first four, and they may have missed the one coming up, but there was one sign that those disciples could always read, and that was the sign of bad weather. And they were getting it. Okay, here's what you need to know about the Sea of Galilee, which is a freshwater lake, but it was big enough they thought, oh, it's a sea. So it's a freshwater lake. The Sea of Galilee lies 700 feet below sea level. But 30 miles to the north is Mount Hermon, which is 9,200 feet above sea level. And so what happens in the weather pattern is the cold air from the mountains continuously clashes with the warm air that's coming off the surface of the waters. And as a result, there are some impressive, breathtaking thunderstorms and gale force winds that are a constant level occurrence on the Sea of Galilee. And as professional fishermen, they were accustomed to reading those signs and knowing when the bad storms were coming. And so that night, as they looked up into the sky and Jesus told them to get in the boat and cross the pond, they knew it was the wrong night to go. So they were reluctant. But what did they do? Obediently respectfully got in the boat. Why? Because they were committed to doing whatever he said to do and to going wherever he said to go. So, against their better judgment, they began the seven to eight mile trip. That's how far. Seven to eight mile trip across the lake. But listen, Jesus didn't just send them to protect them from the hysteria of the crowds. He also sent them because he needed some time alone. He he just needed a break, but not just to separate himself from them, but to connect himself with the Heavenly Father. Matthew chapter 14, verse 23 says... After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. 
to pray. I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm always amazed at the fact that Jesus prayed. He's the second person of the Trinity. God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet Jesus took time to reconnect with the Father for the purpose, I believe, of sorting out the next steps for his ministry. So, while the disciples are laboriously making themselves, making their way across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus climbs the hill to pray. Now, I can't think of a better reminder for us. If Jesus needed time alone with the Father to stay on track, how much more do we? Right? And, and, and by the way, when we read through the accounts of this story, we, we learn this wasn't a 15-minute devotional where Jesus read a psalm and got out his journal and wrote, wrote down a few lines. This was an intense time of prayer and fellowship with the Heavenly Father. How do I know that? Well, John tells us, we can put the timeline together. John tells us that they got in the boat and started across the lake as it was getting dark. That's dusk, right? In the evening. Paddling into the sunset. Matthew says that Jesus didn't show up walking on the water at the boat until the fourth watch of the night. Now, what's the fourth watch of the night? The fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So when we put all of that together, here's what we know. Jesus had some hours to commune with the Father in prayer. It was a serious prayer time. But no matter the intensity or the duration of the prayer time, it's really remarkable that he never lost sight of his struggling but obedient disciples. How do I know that? Because Mark chapter 6, verse 48 says this. From the mountainside, Jesus is up on the mountain, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. Now, I love that. So here they are. Three to four miles, John says, out into the middle of the lake in the middle of the night. And Jesus is using his supernatural night vision to keep an eye on them, even as he is communicating with the Father. It's a great reminder that while we may not always sense his presence, he is always watching. Never too busy. I mean, his eye is on the sparrow, so I know he watches me and you. Now, what does Jesus see? Oh, 
They're struggling. He sees a group of guys struggling in the face of gale force winds. And they are making little to no progress. Okay, think about it. Enter the story. They've been rowing the boat for better than five to six hours. And they had gone maybe, John says, three to four miles. Meaning, if you're good at math, you know this, they are traveling at less than one mile per hour. Half of that. And it wasn't one guy with the paddle. It was 12. It was a rough night. And, and it's made more difficult by the fact that they didn't want to go in the first place. Remember, their heart was on shore with Jesus and the glory that they would experience among the crowds who were celebrating the miraculous feeding. But they were following Jesus. Obediently following His commands. And you, when you're following Jesus, the truth is, you can't stay put. You can't go back. No matter how much better things used to be, the call is to keep moving forward, to keep listening to His voice, and to keep obeying His commands, following Him obediently. See, the call is to be faithful to what's in front of us. That's the call. To be faithful to God's vision. And when we choose faithfulness and obedience, what we experience is we are stepping into the condition that draws God's attention and attracts His power. That's what the faith journey promises. Because God takes delight in those whose hearts are fully committed to Him and are called and obedient for His purposes. So, what's going on? The disciples, they didn't know He was watching. They had no idea. At this point in time, with the storm and the waves, the whole deal, they were so agitated frustrated that they weren't back there where they wanted to be, but they were doing what Jesus told them to do. And in the midst of their obedience, in a full and glorious demonstration of power, Jesus walked up to that boat with the Messiah, the impossible was possible. And that, that's John's perspective. That, that's the point he was trying to make. Looking back at the scene, he saw Jesus stroll, Jesus stroll on the water as confirmation that he was the maker of heaven and earth. 
As he said in his prologue in John chapter 1, verse 3, he wrote, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus not only made it, but when John recounted, recalled this scene in his mind, he understood that Jesus also mastered it. And the walk on water was the sign that proved it. He was and is the maker of heaven and earth. So John reveals the theological perspective. John reveals to us what we learn about God in the person of Jesus Christ. He was the glory of God in flesh and dwelling among us. But Matthew, Matthew presents the passenger's perspective. What we learn about ourselves in the midst of this story. So, I want you to turn, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 14. And I just want to read what happens. Some of these things John left out. But I want you to read what Matthew reveals about this remarkable meeting on the water in the storm. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Jesus got cracked up. No, it doesn't say that. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me! Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Now, remember, just before we launch here, last week we talked about that the issue is not the size of your faith. It wasn't the size of Peter's faith that Jesus was calling out. It was the strong action of his doubt that Jesus was concerned with. It was the fact that his doubt caused him to be distracted. Now, John did not include that part about Peter walking on the water because it didn't fit his purpose. Thankfully, Matthew did. Remember, at first the disciples are agitated when Jesus walks up. They're mad because they're out there. But then they were terrified. Because who but a boat would come sauntering up, who but a ghost would come sauntering up to a boat in the middle of the lake? What are the other options? I mean, it's probably, like you've heard, I'm sure they heard legends about fishermen who died in storms on the lake, who appeared to boats in the dark 
during storms. So probably they're thinking, oh, we're seeing one of those ghosts of the dead fishermen who haunts the water during storms. So of course they're terrified. And even if they didn't believe the legend, of course they're terrified. Because if it's not a ghost, what is it? Now, addressing their fear, Jesus identifies himself, I am, it's me, and tells them to get it together. Like, pull yourself together. And at that point, Peter said, he issues a challenge. I don't know if it was a dare, like, I dare you to call me out there. I don't know what he was doing, but Peter says, look, if you can do that, Jesus, I can do it too uh, with your permission. So Jesus invites him to get out of the boat, which he does. He climbs out of the boat, and sure enough, he's walking on water, not ice, water. Then the Scripture says Peter saw the wind and began to sink. Doesn't it seem like the doesn't it seem like it should say he saw the waves in the water? I mean, can you see the wind? By the way, it was the water that was going to let him down, pun intended, not the wind. But he saw the wind. When he saw the wind and focused on the wind, he began to sink. Sink. It's not the water that's distracting him. It's the wind. And what is the wind? It's the circumstances around him. It's the things going on around him that causes him to take his eyes off Jesus. Now, I would just, let's just pause here for a moment and recognize there is nothing different going on around him from what was happening while he was in the boat. Same storm, same wind, same environment. But outside the boat, you see things differently. When you walk by faith, your perspective changes. He got distracted. He lost focus. He began to sink and cried out to Jesus to save him. And since Jesus is always in the business of saving, he reached out his hand and lifted him up. In that moment, Jesus chastises Peter for his little faith sinking spell which is surprising because no one else was evidencing any faith at that moment right have you ever thought about that why did Peter get in trouble when everybody else was just paralyzed in fear huddled in the boat and when Jesus was fussing at him, I'm sure Peter wanted to say, what about those losers over there? They haven't done anything. 
They're doing nothing. They're sitting in that boat like knots on a log. And I'm in trouble. Right. We, we agree with that, right? Because at least he was doing something. Why, why weren't they getting coached up like Peter? Did any of you watch football yesterday? Any games at all? Raise your hand. Thank you, Darren. Okay, yeah. College football started yesterday officially. So, like, get with the program. There's some good stuff going on out there, right? And, and I watched some of several games. And I never saw a coach, ever, all day, I never saw a coach challenging any players that were standing around with their helmets in their hands warming the bench. You know who the coaches challenge? The guys coming off the field. The guys who are in the game. They're actually playing the game. They're taking the risk. Those are the people who get the most intense coaching. So here's the truth. It doesn't matter if a bench warmer is distracted by the crowd or the cheerleaders. It doesn't matter if boat potatoes are paralyzed by the wind and the waves because they aren't doing anything anyway. It's those people who have stepped out of the boat and are risking something great for God that need His wisdom, His presence, His power, and His encouragement. And it's those people that Jesus reaches out to give it to. They need to be coached up to keep the faith. Because it's out of the relative safety of the boat that we see and feel the wind most intensely. Now, what's ironic is that you see and feel the wind in the boat too. So you're still afraid. But you're wasting the opportunity. You're, you're, you're wasting the opportunity to have a story. Matthew was sitting in the boat, but he had to tell Peter's story because he stayed in the boat. He wasn't exercising faith. Okay, so Peter sank, but at least he was out there to sink. When the lesson's over, Jesus rescues them. They climb back into the boat. And what happened? The scales fall off of all their eyes and they see the sign. They get it. For the first time, they confess about the truth about Jesus. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a rabbi with superpowers. He's not just a prophet, powerful in preaching. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He is worthy of their wholehearted devotion. And we sit back and say, what took them so long? Why then? Shouldn't they have seen 
that Jesus was the Messiah when he turned water into wine, the first sign when he healed the sick, when he cast out demons, when he fed the multitudes. Why, why weren't they getting it then? Yeah, they probably should have gotten that. But there was a problem, a common problem that we all wrestle with. And this is where Mark's perspective comes in. Look at Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 51 and 52. Then he climbed into the boat with them. This is after he rescued Peter. He climbed into the boat with them. The wind died down. They were completely amazed. They couldn't believe what just happened. Why? Because they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. That's verse 52. They had not understood about the loaves. For their hearts were hardened. What, what's that about? Sclerosis of the heart. What is it? It is an unwillingness to believe that God can or will do it again. Now, in Scripture... There's one guy that is most famous for the hardening of his heart. We're familiar with him. He's the Pharaoh of Egypt, right? And, and he was the guy who received the ten plagues from at the staff of Moses prior to the Exodus. Ten times he saw the power of God, and ten times his heart was hardened so as not to believe that God would strike again, do it again. So he found a way in his mind to explain it away or put it out of his mind altogether. He chose not to remember the power of God. Now the disciples here are described as having hardened hearts. Why? Because they didn't fully understand the feeding of the multitudes. What didn't they understand? They didn't understand that Jesus was not just a one-hit wonder. The multiplication of the loaves and the fishes should have told them that as the Son of God, He was not then and never would be limited by the laws of nature or seemingly impossible storms or situations. But since their hearts were hard, they missed it. So when they saw Him walking on water, instead of thinking it's Jesus because He's God, they thought it's a ghost. They weren't looking for God in their troubles. What they were looking for was more trouble. It's a faithless, hopeless perspective. Jesus did the impossible one time. He fed the multitudes. But because their hearts were hardened like Pharaoh's, they didn't think he would do it again. And so I guess we need to ask if we're any better. There, there's no question in my mind that if you have been following Jesus, you know that God has come through for you in the past. But we panic about the present. Because we have hard hearts. We worry and we doubt. We choose fear over faith. We, we, we may be in a situation where we've obediently gotten out of the boat, but when 
we see and experience the wind, we, we lose focus and faith. We, in those moments, we tend to live by doubt and we start to sink. If this sign teaches us anything, it is that God, who has done it before, will do it again. God will show up again in the middle of the fiercest storm because nothing confines him. He is not limited. He is not constrained. He is the great way maker. You can sit in the boat, paralyzed in fear, and let someone else live the story that God has written for you. You can risk nothing, or you can get out of the boat and not only experience the fiercest winds of resistance, because they will come, but you'll also experience the amazing breathtaking, life-giving presence and power of God. Once you get out of the boat, don't look back. Don't look around. Stay focused. Keep moving. Keep believing. Keep following Jesus because the God who called you is the God who will keep you up. Now, some of you here today need to follow the signs, get out of your boat, and place your faith in Jesus for the first time. You need to understand who He is, the Son of God, why He came to demonstrate God's love for the whole world, and what He did while He was here. He lived a perfect life. In the end, He died a cruel death, on the cross he was buried in a tomb for three days but after that three days by the power of God and to the glory of God he was raised from the dead why? so we could be forgiven of our sins cleansed from all unrighteousness and have eternal life and abundant life life lived outside the boat. But it begins with placing your faith in Jesus. If, if you're here, then I, I assume you're at least curious. God's doing something that has brought you to this place. And let me tell you what's happening. God, by His Spirit, is inviting you to trust Jesus. The Spirit is leading you to walk on water in faith. You have to get out of the boat. You have to forget about what your friends are thinking or about what your family is thinking, what, what people you work with will think if you become a believer in Jesus and just follow the Spirit. It'll change your life. 
some of you need to follow the signs and place your faith in Jesus. And some of us who believe, some of us are numbered with the disciples who just sat there like knots on a log. Just stayed in the boat. Just thankful that Jesus showed up to help, but not willing to live by faith, to get out of our comfort zones and risk doing something great for God. Some of us need to get out of the boat and live the beautiful story that God wrote for us. The scripture says, all the days ordained for you were written in his book before one of them came to be. God has a great story that he wants to tell through you, but it doesn't happen in the boat. What's required to get out of the boat? Focus and faith. Focus and faith. What's God calling you to do today? Let's bow our heads. Father, we're so grateful for the signs of your glory. We're so grateful that when the fullness of time came, Jesus stepped out of eternity and into time to reveal to us your glory and goodness, to reveal to us what you care about, and the lengths that you will go to reconnect with us. We're grateful, Father, that you love the world so much that you sent Jesus to die so that we don't have to be separated from you so we won't perish, but we can have everlasting life through faith. Lord, I, I pray for those in this room who have never placed their faith in Jesus, that by your Spirit today, Lord, you would draw them to step out in faith and trust you. Is that you today? Or is, is God calling you to believe in Jesus? pray that you'll hear the Spirit's voice and respond by faith. Maybe you're thinking, gosh, what do, I, what do I have to do? Well, you just have to believe. See, Jesus did it all. Jesus paid the price to get us connected with the Father. We just respond to His grace by faith. You just believe. If you believe, the Bible says you have eternal life. If you believe the story, Father, I pray for those who believe but who have not yet committed to following. Lord, by your Spirit, give them courage. Courage to risk faith. To step out into the deep 
experience your faithfulness and presence. Thank you for visiting with us today, Lord. May the seed of truth that was planted in our heart bear much fruit for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.